Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. All right, well, in my preparations for today, I've only had one thought, and that's this, rest. How many of you like to rest? I like to rest. I like to rest. Now, as Holy Spirit has led me to reflect on this topic, I quickly discovered that when you look at the biblical concept of rest, you notice that it's deeply intertwined with the biblical concept of work. You almost can't separate the two. It's kind of like they're two sides of the same coin. So our title for today is Made to Work, Made to Rest. So I, for one, am learning a lot still about both from the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm no expert on either one of them, especially biblical rest. Uh, I don't believe I have applied it to my life perfectly, or I should say my family's rhythm of life, but I'm eager to continue to learn. And that is by his grace alone, so I'm thankful. Now, I believe this study will resonate, hear me, resonate with some of you. As I've prayed for today, I believe some of you long to learn more about maintaining a godly balance between work and rest and how to approach each one righteously. And I hope that today you walk away encouraged and challenged in your walk before the Lord. And seeing as it's summer, right? It's summer. (laughs) Seeing as summer is now underway, what a providential time to lean into God's word and learn about both work and rest. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, in Jesus' name, your word is a treasure to us. We hold in our possession something absolutely priceless. And we're so thankful that you are sharing it with us. And so in this moment, God, we relish in its beauty and its glory. And we pray, God, that you would speak for your glory and our joy right now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, well, within the creation story, Uh, found in the book of Genesis, uh, God established a pattern we are called to emulate. Now, he established a rhythm for work and rest that when both are followed, uh, are very healthy and purposeful. Now, later on in the book of Exodus, we see a great example of God uh, valuing work and also commanding Sabbath rest. So we're going to start there in Exodus 31. We're going to begin with work. And then we'll move on to rest later. And specifically for rest, we're going to take a look at it uh, through the biblical lens of the Old Testament and what it meant for the nation of Israel uh, back in their day. And then we're going to transition and look at it through the lens of the New Testament to see what it might mean for us today. So first up, work. Now, this is how significant work is. A majority of people sitting in this room right now, watching online or listening later on to our podcast, a significant portion of you spend the week at a place of work, doing a job. Now, I'm including in that students, stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, people who work remotely, people who report to a job or to an office. Now, listen to this math. Okay, I did a little calculation, okay? If you work 
40 hours a week, 50 weeks of the year, for 40 years of your life. That is a whopping 80,000 hours of your life. And listen, that's not even counting the time spent in education that prepares you for work, which can be easily another 15,000 to 30,000 hours depending on your program of study. That's a ton of hours. That's years upon years of your life. So question, if we're created to know and savor the glory of God in Christ Jesus and showcase that to the world, we have to ask, what is the purpose of all this work-related time spent in relation to our purpose in God? Does having a secular job play a minor role in the Great Commission? Unless you have a Bible study during your lunch break with your coworkers? Or do we just compartmentalize our service to God to Sundays or maybe a weeknight in the middle of the week? See, these are important questions because, again, work and preparation for work take up an immense amount of time in our lives. And keep this in mind. We didn't even factor in sleep. Listen, for the average 85-year-old who slept an average of eight hours a night, every night, that adds up to 28 years of their lives. Listen, that is a third of your life just doing this. That's a third of your life spent sleeping. So, as you can see, finding the God-ordained, purpose-driven balance for both work and rest is hugely important. So here's our driving question for today. How do we do both for the glory of God? Now, Exodus chapter 31 addresses both work and rest. The first half, excuse me, the first half of this chapter focuses on work, and the second half of the chapter focuses on rest. The work in the first part uh, is all about God giving instructions to Moses on the building of the tabernacle, which the tabernacle is going to be like this this tent-like house where the glory of God would dwell amongst his people. And then again, the second part, Uh, It's all about rest, but we're going to begin with the first part. So let's read the first 11 verses of Exodus chapter 31, and then we will unpack work just a little bit. So beginning in verse 1, Exodus 31 reads this. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I have personally appointed Oholiab, son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I have commanded you to make. 
the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. All the furnishings of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all, its, its, all of its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the wash basin with its stand, the beautifully stitched garments, the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to wear as they minister as priests, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place. The craftsman must make everything as I have commanded you. So here's our first observation uh, about work. God delights in work. Everybody repeat after me. God delights in work. All right, when I read uh, verse 6 through 11, I see a massively long sentence. Okay, as an English major... I know that when folks use or speak with long sentences, it's typically because they're excited about something. They're excited. So for me, I hear excitement in God's voice here. And this is how I read it. Let me back up to verse 6 for a second. Let me try to uh, recreate how I read it aloud. Moses, Moses, okay, listen, Moses, Moses, attention, here we go, Moses. I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I'm about to command you. Okay, are you paying attention? Because we're going to cover a lot of ground here. All right, we're talking about the tabernacle. Okay, we're talking about the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark's cover, because this will be the place of atonement. Okay, and so what I'm seeing, all right, we have to, okay, we're going to furnish this tabernacle. Okay, are you with me? And we're going to furnish the tabernacle, and then what I'm seeing is this beautiful handcrafted table. Moses, write this down. Handcrafted table, okay? And if we're going to have a table, you got to have its utensils. Got to have the utensils. And then listen, ooh, you know what we need? Light, light. So I want a lampstand, a beautiful lampstand. Oh, you know what? I want it made of pure gold. Make it out of pure gold, Moses. Pure gold, okay? A pure gold lampstand. I want that there. And now, if we're going to have a lampstand, we got to have all accessories because they got to turn it on. They got to keep it burning day and night. All right, so listen. Pure gold lampstand. Write that down. All right, and then incense altar, okay? Incense altar. I want it to smell good, okay? And then, of course, place of atonement. We need the altar, the altar of burnt offering, Moses. And if we're going to have an altar for burnt offering, we're going to need utensils, right, to do the job that we need to do. And I can kind of, yeah, I can see that it's going to get messy with you people. So, uh, we're going to need, we're going to need a wash basin, okay? A wash basin. You know, it's a wash. They're going to have, it's going to get messy. All right, listen. And then on top of that, oh, you know what? Speaking of people who are going to do this, my priests, I want them decked out. You know what I'm saying? I want them decked out. Beautifully stitched garments for Aaron and his sons to minister as priests. Oh, and don't forget, Moses, don't, don't forget, the anointing oil. The anointing oil, the fragrant incense of the holy place. Okay, the craftsman must make everything that I just commanded you. Now, I know, I know. That, that, that was a little much. That was a little much, but that's how I saw it in my mind's eye. All right? All right? So, listen, to me, God is thrilled here. You know why he's thrilled? Because the tabernacle means something significant to God because of what it's ultimately going to mean to his people. And just as we read, listen, just as we read, there's going to be a ton of work. 
I mean, we're talking, let's see, metalworking, sawing, sewing, wood carving, uh, oil making, uh, gem setting, stone cutting, and so on. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of jobs. And hear me, Moses was not the man for all those jobs. In fact, if Moses was anything like me, he was not the man for any of these jobs. I mean, listen, what the Bible is teaching us here is that God delights in work. And this is a massive takeaway for us, and I can't underscore it enough. God is excited about work because in it, you heard all the, you heard all the visioneering, right? In his, in his words, we hear all this work-related creativity in his words. And in this text, God speaks, and then a flurry of beautiful work is set to begin. To me, it's kind of reminiscent of the creation story, where at the end of every day of creation, God saw and said that it was good. God delights in work. It is necessary for us to settle that in our hearts. All right, second observation about work. We are made to work. We are made to work. Now, we see this all over the Bible, especially in the very beginning in Genesis when God, who made man, told him to tend and keep, a.k.a. work, the garden. So you have to keep in mind that work existed before the curse. That's key. Work existed before the curse. So Specifically, this reality about being made uh, by God to work includes uh, two things, two components that we can see in this text. The first one is this, God works in us, okay? God works in us. So from God, there's no, I've made you to work now, go away and uh, go do that work. No, no, no. No, God has always hear me, always worked in us and for us. He created us, he provides for us, he sustains us, he supplies us with everything that we have need of. He supplies us with everything that pertains to life and godliness. So in this text, God works in these two men, Bezalel and Oholiab. I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. And a bunch of other craftsmen for that matter, to make the tabernacle a reality. Now listen, okay, this is very specific. Listen to the language that God uses in working in these people. In verse two, we see this. Look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel. In verse three, he says this. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. The first part of verse 6, I have personally appointed Aholiab. And in the last part of that same verse, moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things. So let me ask you this question. 
where did Bezalel, Oholiab, and all these craftsmen get all these skills, talents, and gifts to begin with? From God. God gave it to them. God worked in them. And if he didn't, they'd be of no help. Do you guys see that? So therefore, we must understand that every gift that you have for your work comes from God. Every gift, skill, and talent that you have for your work comes from God. We're able to work and do because God works in us and for us. So this revelation should stir us to thankfulness. It should keep us humble. Listen, no matter, no matter how hard you grind, no matter how much you achieve and produce, every inch, every inch of your process is made possible because of him. Every inch, period. Thanksgiving unto God, therefore, is a non-negotiable. Also, when God works in us, when he works in you and for you, he has unmistakably assigned value and purpose to you and your work. This is big too. See, because some of you, some of you need to feel that today. See, you've been given value and purpose by God in your work. Even at your crazy, stressful, frustrating, seemingly menial job, God has given you value and purpose. And I thank God for that. It's important to know that, especially when you're down in the dumps about your job. God has given you value and God has given you purpose because the work comes from him. So next thought, within being made to work, the other true reality, the other component that I mentioned uh, is that God also works through us. He works through us, okay? God works in us and God works through us. So let me ask you this question. Does God, excuse me, does God need Bezalel or Oholiab or anyone else for that matter to build the tabernacle? You know, we're talking about the God who created all things. Could he have built it himself? Absolutely he could have. Of course he could have. But question, did he? No, he did not. Instead, listen, he chose, he chose to work through Bezzy, Oho, and the crew. He chose. He chose to do that. And he chose to work through them in order to have each contribute their part to the whole. There are loads of beautiful implications here. Okay? Listen, he chose to work through them just like he, cho he chooses to work through you and me. How awesome. How awesome is that? That God would choose to work through you and I. Those who do not deserve his grace and his mercy and his goodness. He chooses 
to work through us. See, work is a good thing. Work is a God thing. Work has always been a part of God's good design for us, and it is a fundamental part of who we are. I love what Tim Keller says about work in a book he wrote titled Every Good Endeavor. He said this, work is so foundational. It is so foundational to our makeup that it's one of the few things that we can take in significant doses without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly. It directs us to the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can only take so much of them. That's, that's well said. Now listen, when we view work through a biblical lens, we see that God is a working creator, and as image bearers who walk in his likeness, we are also working creatures. So work is a part of God's good design for our lives. And this, hear me, this brings dignity. It brings dignity to any and every kind of work we and other people do. Now, I'm not talking about like sinful work. Of course, I'm not including that. But it brings dignity to any and every kind of work. Because work is dignified by God because it brings glory to God. And this is also very important for us to note. Because here in Exodus 31, Moses had a role to play. Bezalel had a role to play. Oholiab had a role to play. And all the craftsmen had a role to play. All kinds of people had a role to play in this project. Each one of them was important. Each role and each job was important. And you need to see that. We need to see what God did there. That will give some of you confidence in your work. To know that your contribution is good and valuable. That will give some of you confidence. While at the same time, it might give others of you a small dose of humility. I can overachieve sometimes. But listen, God dignifies our work and the work of others, and so should we. That'll teach you how to interact with your coworkers. You see, when we value the dignity God assigns to all kinds of various work, we then have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to appreciate the services provided to us by others. Similarly, we value the service that we can offer to them in turn. So think about that. Imagine that. This ushers in a beautiful and diverse community that reminds us that we are better together. We are better together. Amen? Thanks be to God. Now, I have a couple more things that I want to say about work, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it within our overview of rest. So let's move on to rest um, for now. Okay, so we are made to rest. We are made to rest. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, let me read you uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, okay? 
So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Now let's go back to uh, the second half of Exodus uh, chapter 31, picking up where we left off uh, in verse 12. Exodus 31, verse 12. Then God, excuse me, the Lord then gave these instructions to Moses. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. You must keep the Sabbath day, for it is a holy day for you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Anyone who works on that day will be cut off from the community. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. The people of Israel must keep the Sabbath day by observing it from generation to generation. This is a covenant obligation for all time. It is a permanent sign of my covenant with the people of Israel. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. Okay, so first observation on the topic of rest. So you may know. So you may know. So these verses that we just read uh, make it abundantly clear that this day of rest was really important to the nation of Israel. Like they were to keep the Sabbath or they would die. It was to be a priority for them. It was supposed to be central to their lives. And what I want to note is that this Sabbath was not just intended to be rest from physical labor, but it was to be rest with trust in God's love. See, God was training them. God was training the nation of Israel. You have to keep in mind that the Ten Commandments given uh, 11 chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 20 were not a means to salvation, but they were a result of salvation. God already saved them from Pharaoh. God has already brought them out of Egypt. This is the book of Exodus. So therefore, these commandments were intended to be a model of how a saved person should now live. And one huge aspect of that was resting in total trust of God's love. Now listen again to how God gave this command to the people of Israel for their good. Exodus 31, verse 13. It says, it is given, the Sabbath, right? It is given so that you may know that I, there's our focus, so that you may know that I, there's our focus, am the Lord who makes you, there's our trust, who makes you holy. In other words, he was saying, I, the Lord, 
have set you apart as my people. I have set you apart so you can know me and trust me. See, God is feeding his relationship with his people, and he's asking and instructing them to do the same. Everyone who is married in this place knows that you cannot have a successful, God-glorifying marriage if each individual in that marriage is not contributing or investing into the relationship. It's a must. Both must contribute. And so the same thing is happening here. The Sabbath was the day they were supposed to set aside work, rest in him, focus on him, and trust in his love for them. Now, this was a huge shift for the people of Israel and a critical shift at that. See, because these people have never known rest. Remember who we're talking about. These people have never known rest. Back in Egypt, what were they? Slaves. And as slaves, what did they do? Work. And how often did they work? Every day. They worked every day for 400 years. Are you seeing what we're talking about? So their identity was in their work. That's all they did. And so now God was laying before them new and transformative words to reorient their identity. Reorient their identity into their God-given identity. He was telling them that he was Yahweh the Lord and that he was their God and that they were his people, his sons and daughters whom he loved. That was supposed to be their identity. And this was vastly different from when they were in Egypt. So when it comes to work, dealing with this specific group of people, when it comes to work, here's the struggle. Just like you and I can be tempted to think that in our fast-paced culture, we got to work, we got to work, we got to work, right? Just as you and I can be tempted to keep working, the people of Israel would also be tempted to think, oh, oh uh, wait, uh, you want us to take a day off? Like, wait, what? Like, what are, we, what are we supposed to do all day? Like, wait, no, no, that's not, no, like, we, we need to work, Lord. We need to work. I mean, like, Bezi and Oho, right, they have extremely important work with the tabernacle. Yeah, they, they can't stop now. They got to meet the deadlines. They got to go. They got to keep building, right? And others might have been tempted to think, oh, you know what I need to do right now? I need to, I, I need to sow that field. Mm, yeah, I got to sow that field. I ain't got time to waste. Oh, you know what? Others might have been like, I need to harvest that field. I got to work. I got to do the things. We need to sow. We need to reap. We need to do this. We need to do that. Why? Because we can't, we can't take a day off. We can't rest. We can't stop. What will happen if we stop? What will happen if we stop? It will be terrible. So those temptations were real. They were real back then, and they're real now. So for some of us, the release to focus and trust in God is brutally difficult. (laughs) 
brutally difficult. I mean, we're at the point where if our phone's in our pocket, we feel it vibrate when it didn't go off. Like, we're at that point now. So listen, by instituting this, God was saying, let me help you. The work I give you and help you with is not intended to consume you to the, to the degree where you can't put it down. Everything, son, daughter, hinges on us building this oneness thing. Everything hinges on it. So pause and know that I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. Trust in me. Focus on me. Because just as I was with you for the six days of work, set aside this day of rest in me, to trust in me, to grow in your knowledge of me and my love for you. And hear me, I will provide for you even on this day. I got you. I am the Lord, your God. That's what he was saying. And that's an absolutely beautiful gift. That's a great gift, and we need to hear the same thing today because resting in God and building our relationship with him is key. Now, I'm reading a book currently that has introduced me to this idea, which I kind of love, is that rest is a gift, not a reward. Now, we live in a culture that emphasizes rest as the reward very, very strongly. Work hard now, rest later. Work long, retire well. That's the goal, right? Got to get there. Just, just got to get through the week, through, through the case of the Mondays. Oh, are we there? Through hump day, Wednesday, almost there. Trudge, trudge through Thursday. TGIF, thank God, thank God it's Friday. Woo, we made it. Yes, time to rest. That concept is prevalent in our culture. Okay, well, this book highlighted that the scriptures present a different outlook. One that says that rest is a gift. Just look at the first day of creation. Excuse me, look at the first day of rest in creation. God worked for six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, correct? Well, it was on the sixth day that God created man. So it can be said that Adam and Eve's first full day was the seventh day, which was spent with God because that was the day that God rested. You see that? That's a total, total shift. So therefore, Adam and Eve began with and from rest. And from there, they went on to work. That's beautiful. That's a total paradigm shift for you and I. So hear me. This starts to make sense when it comes to rest for us. When we put work aside at the proper time, we're saying to God, you know what? I don't have to be working all the time. I set aside time specifically 
to focus on you, Lord, to grow in knowledge of who you are, to build my relationship with you, to trust you, Father, to provide for me. Being with you sets me up for success for whatever lies ahead this coming week. That's where we need to start. And I pray that that would burrow deeply in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. So now, I want to take this thought of rest involving our focus on God and our trust in God and slide into the New Testament with our second observation, which is this Show them that beautiful bean footage on that screen. As I take a sip of some much needed water. All right, observation number two. Oh man, our rest is found in his finished work. Pack up your stuff, guys. Let's, let's go, let's go. Who wants coffee from the mission? Yeah, like our rest is found in his finished work. Now, as clear as I can say it, a balanced rhythm of life is best built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't say it any clearer. I can't say it any better. The very good news that secures for me our salvation, or excuse me, the very good news that secures for us our salvation is the good news that leads us to total freedom. Freedom. It's liberating. It's fully satisfying, and it infuses us with significance. I'm using very specific language that I hope sticks to your minds. It's freeing. We are free to rest in Jesus' finished work. Hallelujah. Now, I'm going to read to you uh, a few scriptures out of the New Testament concerning the Sabbath. And for this, I just want you to listen. Just listen to these holy words. This is the holy word of God. And as a matter of fact, Jesus, yep, Jesus spoke all of these. So listen very attentively. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Matthew 12, 8 says, For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This was a grand claim, especially in front of those who not only religiously pursued the Mosaic law to the degree that they took it upon themselves to add protection to God's divine law with their own tradition. So when he said this, this was huge, huge. So here's what we're left with. In Jesus, something greater than the Sabbath is here. In Jesus, something greater than the Sabbath is here. In light of the picture of the Sabbath we discussed in Exodus chapter 31, listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. 
So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality that is yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Did you hear that? Christ is that reality. He is the fulfillment. The Sabbath was set up by God long ago as a shadow to point to Christ. The Sabbath, the fourth commandment, is a foreshadowing type of Jesus. He is our rest. I'm so thankful. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful to God that it's no longer about what I need to do, but it's completely about what he's already done. This is the new covenant, a place of simple faith where we discover our ultimate rest is solely in Jesus' saving work. It's all been pointing to Jesus. He is our rest. He is to be our focus, and it's in him whom we trust. Now, I understand. I understand this begs a lot of questions, okay? Are there any biblical ethics that we can draw from, practically speaking? I understand. Well, for starters, we see that God has put on display the knowledge of work and rest and how they're kind of bound together. Now, just knowing that is not enough. We have to apply that knowledge to our lives in wisdom. And my boy, Charlie Spurgeon, you know I had to bring him in here. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. I'm going to just walk up, I'm going to do all that dap stuff, and he's going to be like, good sir. <laughs> bro, bro, just, just, just tuck it in, man. Tuck it in, tuck it in, tuck it in, tuck it in, man. Oh, thank you for your service to the kingdom. Charles Spurgeon said this about wisdom. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Bruh. So good. So when it comes to applying Sabbath rest as Jesus has laid out for us in the New Testament, I think another awesome scholar, N.T. Wright, said it very well. And I believe it's still very applicable to us in our fast-paced culture. N.T. Wright said it this way. It is only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up to God. So well said. That's great wisdom for us today. See, we need wisdom, excuse me, we need wisdom to arrive at that righteous balance between not overvaluing work while undervaluing rest, and equally not overvaluing rest and undervaluing work. See, we need prayer-sought wisdom 
to value both in ways that honor God. So although we can spend hours on this, and the church has spent years on this, I'm going to try to keep it brief. In fact, you know what? I encourage you, dig into these scriptures. If this subject matter interests you, dig into the scriptures because it really is a beautiful study. Okay? So I'll set us up with this question. How did we get to where we are? So God did establish a pattern. Work six days, rest one day. We find this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, when he spoke to the nation of Israel through Moses and provided commandment number four, keep the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath in Hebrew means to rest. Now, in the Hebrew calendar, the Sabbath was observed on the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. They did this for a long time, and Jews in Israel and other parts of the world to this day along with other denominations, still adhere to the strict observing of the Old Testament standard for the Sabbath. Now, something major occurred at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, who stepped off his throne and entered into human history, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who died on the cross for your sin and my sin, who fulfilled the law, rose from the dead on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Now, every gospel testifies to that fact. Matthew chapter 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John chapter 20. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. So early Christians started worshiping on Sundays to honor him. Whether that was before they went to work or after work, they were just compelled to honor and worship him on Sunday. The book of Revelation calls that day the Lord's Day. Now the early church thus started to meet on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And we read this in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. So there's the reason why we, along with billions of Christians around the world, gather on Sundays to worship and Sabbath in him. We're not here randomly. Okay, this precedent was established long ago. So now we have Jews observing the Sabbath on Saturday. And we have Christians who started to observe Sabbath on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, the spread of Christianity continued to grow, so much so that in the fourth century, under Emperor Constantine, whether for personal or political reasons, not really clear there, under Emperor Constantine, Christianity was formally adopted as the official religion of the Roman Empire. This was a major change because originally it went from, originally it was an outlawed religion. And here now, a few hundred years later, it becomes the official religion of the empire. And as such, the calendar began to reflect the Christian orientation for uh, the Christian orientation of the week because it was already a part of the Christian culture. So fast forward with me to the late 
1800s and early 1900s here in America. Now, at that time, there was much discussion and debate about which days to take off from work to rest and worship. Sundays were easy since it was a long-standing Christian tradition by that point, but with the influx of many Jewish immigrants, workers in the Industrial Revolution wanted Saturday off to rest and worship. So what did leaders and owners of factories do? They decided to give us both. So one mill in New England in 1908 kicked it off and gave workers both days off. This began a domino effect. One factory after another, one industry after another. They all followed suit and it was kind of sealed uh, with our man Henry Ford when he went and decided, when he decided to implement the five-day work week, two-day weekend in his legendary auto-making factories in 1926. And voila, less than 100 years later, here we are. Five days of work, two days for our weekend. So here's what I'm gonna say to all of that. Actually, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm gonna let Paul do it. Paul, in Romans 14, is dealing with Christians in the church at Rome both of Jewish descent and Gentile descent and their ongoing debate about some wanting to observe the Sabbath or certain special feast days and others not wanting to. Kind of like America in the 1900s, right? And this is what Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, said. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. The Holy Spirit brings liberty here. He brings liberty here. Because remember what we read in Colossians chapter 2. So don't let anyone condemn you. Don't receive it, or even if you flip it and you invert it, don't give out condemnation. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only a shadow. They're only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, is saying this, it's really up to you. Be fully convinced in whichever you choose. Here's the important part. Set aside a day to honor the Lord and be fully convinced. The bottom line is worshiping Jesus is important. Resting in Jesus is important. The point of the Sabbath is Jesus. Amen? It's Jesus. And corporately, Corporately, we're doing both on Sunday mornings. Sunday is the day that we remember the resurrection like the early church did. So we gather, we worship, and Sabbath in his faithfulness. We've been, given, we've been doing so for nearly 34 years as a local church. And the global church has been doing it for a couple thousand years because he's worthy. And hear me. The assembling of the saints is a beautiful and biblical thing meant to point us 
to rest in him. Now, if you want to add to that with a Sunday dinner with your family, do it. You want to turn off your phone on Saturday and devote yourself to God and quality time with your family? Do it. You want to have a Monday morning devotional? Do it. How about a weeknight devotional with your kids? Do it. How about another time with your connect group? Do it. How about on a walk, a hike, or a run by yourself? Do it. Listen, if you're spending time focusing on Him, trusting Him, resting in Him, worshiping Him, by all means, do it. He's worthy of it all. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who gives us rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3 says this, we who believe can enter his rest. So hear me church, faith in Jesus Christ allows us and affords us the opportunity to bring the rest of the seventh day into every day. Bring it into every day. Bring him into your every day. Can we geek out on one more thing? Can we geek out on one more thing? Please, please. Okay. So we saw, keep playing. We saw in Exodus and Colossians that the Sabbath was a foreshadowing of Christ. You remember that? That the Sabbath is a foreshadowing of Christ. Here's one more thing that reminds us of him. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, that word there, dwelt, in the Greek, it's the word skinao. Skinao. And one of the literary understandings of that word is, get this, tabernacled. So, so this tabernacle, excuse me. So this tabernacle, back in Exodus chapter 31, the one that God told Moses, Bezalel, Olihab, and all those other people to build, the one that he was really excited about, was also a foreshadowing type of Christ. It was also meant to point forward to Jesus who has come and then now is here. He has fulfilled it and embodied it perfectly. He is God tabernacled amongst us. He is God tabernacled in you. That's amazing. Hear me church, you were once dead. A lonely grave, but now, like the project for the tabernacle, the place reserved for the dwelling place of God. You are being made beautiful. You are being made beautiful with all kinds of riches and glories from God and being transformed into a dwelling place of the Lord. You've gone from a grave to a garden. Get on your feet, church. I'm not gonna be the only one that's excited about this. Get on your feet. You are being made beautiful like Eden, okay? The tabernacle and all its designed beauty was an echo of the Garden of Eden. And now that representation is you. That representation is you. Do you hear what I'm saying, church? You in Christ, Christ in you, dwelling together. Now a foreshadowing of the kingdom of heaven that is to come. Representation. 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.